Hey, podcast community, dear friends, this is John, and this is part two of the evolutionary and very exciting and transformational conversation with my now friend, Dr. Frederick Kuna, a representative and diplomat from the EU who travels to different countries that need European aid. And one of the places he's been is Ukraine. So stay tuned as this continues to evolve. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, Paradigm-Rattling Conversations with Cutting-Edge Thinkers, Contemplatives, and Activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Frederick, you've been very deeply immersed in the Enneagram and been researching and teaching it for a lot of years. And you've spoken about how it's transforming the people you're teaching. But two questions here. One, most people will be familiar somewhat with the Enneagram, but perhaps you could just briefly summarize the, the key gifts it offers. But also, how has your familiarity, indeed expertise with the Enneagram, affected the way you see these situations and the work you're doing? And what, what point number might you be if you want to reveal that on, in a public forum? I'd be fascinated to know. Well, first of all, I identify with self-preservation six. I, I would say I'm, I'm as convinced as a six can be that I'm a six because type six is normally very doubtful about everything. And, I've, and each time that I'm really convinced that I'm a six, then I start doubting it again. But I've been told by many people, look, Frederick, just accept it, self-preservation six, that's it. <laughs> Me too, by the way. Frederick, so I, I can relate big time. Yeah, so I just I just trust them. Now, I I would actually say that the big change in my life in order to stop thinking black and white has actually come from studying the Enneagram. This was, let's say, my introduction to doing some work on myself. I mean, it's not by knowing the Enneagram that as such by, by knowing the typology and then the specific patterns and the defense mechanisms of the different types. That has not, that doesn't really help me in understanding Russians necessarily better or in understanding Greek Ukrainians better. But it's more the process of becoming more self-aware and becoming less judgmental and understanding that each time you are judgmental, you're actually talking about yourself and not about the other. And this is something that the Enneagram has really taught me. To me, the, the Enneagram has really brought forward a huge inner transformation for myself. Learning to accept myself better, learning to accept my wife better, and understanding that the issues that I have with her are actually about me, not about her. Um, understanding the kids better. And also understanding that it's about me, not about them, that these kids are just doing what kids have to do. So if I get triggered, it's not that they are bad kids or anything like that. It's just me getting into some kind of reactive mode. And, and it's this awareness of when am I in a reactive mode and telling myself, okay, look, Frederick, maybe you just need to calm down, just take a step backwards, take a deep breath. That's been the thing that's really been helping me, in, especially in the last few months. That's very well said. Very well said. Yeah, you, you've really got the the heart of why it is such a powerful tool. 
Yeah. And our next interview, at, by the way, Roger, is going to be with Leslie Hirschberger. She's one of the world's top Enneagram teachers. So uh, I'm looking very forward to that also. Yeah. Well, beautiful. And what I hear, Frederick, is that while it may have given you some insights into other people and their perspectives, the major impact has really been to bring greater awareness and reflectivity to your own experience and give you a little more distance on your own reactivity. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And you've been very, one of the things I've noticed about you in our conversation and just reflecting on the work you've been doing and so forth is exactly your ability to stand back and hold multiple perspectives and not get lost into the automatic reactivity. Do you feel the Enneagram has helped with that? Well, the Enneagram has helped me in that, but the Enneagram has also showed that's maybe, that's both my strength and my weakness. Type six tends to be able to hold different perspectives, have understanding for all of them, and at the end, not having their own opinion and being able to move quite often from one to the other, just because they're in doubt. Each time they happen to be convinced of something, then the next second they're doubting that again. And, and I think what the, the Enneagram has taught me is that, indeed, having multiple perspectives is very good, but it should not lead to some kind of analysis paralysis. But at the end of the day, I do need to take decisions. I cannot just sit there and just be overwhelmed by different points of view. Uh, and that's something that I've had to work on and that I'm still working on uh, and that I will probably be working on until I leave, I, I leave planet Earth. Well, that, that raises a very interesting question when, I mean, the more educated, hopefully in the best of all worlds, the more perspectives that we're able to take. You know, we see history from many different sides. But how do, how do you come to finally making a judgment, given all that, and not just to be lost in these multi-perspectival universe, if you will, and say, okay, this, but this is the one that's coming from the highest level of morality, ethics, or the right thing, and I need to go with this, while at the same time holding these other perspectives. Well, in the past, what I did was I was just trying to make some kind of analysis, right, and just weighing pros and cons and so on. Lately, I'm more just trying to follow my heart. Because mm. I feel that what I do is when I feel overwhelmed by so many different thoughts, just take a step backwards, take a few breaths. And what I feel right is going to be my decision. And then I stick to it. And of course, later I am going to doubt it. I mean, as a good six, to be stereotyping myself, right? Which I shouldn't be doing. But as a good six, then I'm going to doubt my own decisions. But then I just tell myself, no, Frederick, you took a decision. And it's your responsibility to follow through whatever the consequences of your decision may be. But that's part of it. And Frederick, I think you've given a beautiful description of what is traditionally called practical wisdom. One, one aspect of wisdom, wisdom having two sides. One is the kind of deep understanding, but another is how do we effectively and skillfully and benevolently respond in the world. And it seems like there are several dimensions to that. One is we are in this existential situation of we live in mystery. We never know fully all the circumstances that we have to take into account. We can never predict fully how our actions will have their impacts and what positive and negative things will come out of them. So we live in this 
in this unknowing, and yet we have, must act. Yet we must choose and we must take responsibility for our choices. Of course, being willing to correct where we can, but this seems to be our existential condition simply by virtue of humans. We are faced with this, this crux of our limitations and yet our necessity to act. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is something that sometimes I'm struggling with because, I mean, we all suffer from that, but the type six is maybe struggling with this even more because people who identify with type six, they really want to forecast all the consequences of what's going to happen. And of course, as a bureaucrat, that's perfect. I mean, <laughs> type six in a bureaucracy, just they, they thrive. But I've had to learn that sometimes you have to take a decision not knowing what the consequences will be. And you still do take these consequences without actually knowing where you're heading to, right? I mean, yeah. just an example, when, when the war started in, in Ukraine, I mean, in, in my position, we have lots of projects in Ukraine. And suddenly you have all these people who are fleeing their houses. There's need for protective equipment. There's need for just any kind of support for even even defense units, right? Not, not for active fighting, but even, let's say, the anti-monopoly agency or anti-corruption agency and so on. They also need to have some kind of protective equipment if they want to go somewhere and they still want to carry out their jobs. So basically what we did in the first few days, of course, in a bureaucracy, if you want to change something, it takes ages. I mean, if, if in our system you want to change a contract that is, let's say, for educational purposes and suddenly you want to buy some kind of uh, jacket, a protective uh, jacket and helmet, I mean, that's going to take six months. But together with two of my colleagues, I mean, my, my, my bosses, basically, we understood the need to act quickly. And we basically already went ahead with changes before they were formally allowed by the rules and procedures. Yeah. We knew that what we were doing was stepping into a certain risky territory and we did the best to cover ourselves up, but we had two options. Either wait for six months and say that, okay, and in six months we will be giving the support or just act immediately. And because we just said, okay, let's act now and we're going to sort things out, um, that really helped us in, in making sure that within the next two, three days, the first support was already being delivered. And, and then today, this again is one of these things where by understanding your own patterns and observing your own way of thinking and telling yourself like, hey, Frederick, stop for a moment. Like, what are you doing? Shouldn't you be doing this and that and that? Shouldn't you be doing anything in your power to provide all the support that is needed to the war-affected population? Are you going to be the bureaucrat and follow the rules? Or are you going to use your position to make sure that you provide the support to the people? And then you also use your position to make sure that the bureaucracy is going to adapt the rules to what is needed. Because sometimes rules are not helpful in making sure that the policy is being implemented. So you're giving a beautiful example of the willingness to take responsibility for actions which aren't necessarily supported by the system around you, 
and to step into in developmental terms to come from a very much a self-authoring place of not looking to the, the rules and regulations for safety, but willing to put yourself on the line for what you knew or felt very deeply in your heart was right in that moment. Of course, I was not the only one, but we were with three people together who really pushed things very, very much forward. We could have waited, but we knew that waiting would be the wrong thing. Yeah, and I wanted to say that, you know, bureaucracies have gotten a really bad rap, but bureaucracies are one of the necessary structures for civilization. You know, we have to have them or we have chaos. So as Ken Wilber once said, you know, corporations are bad. Bad corporations are bad. The same thing with bureaucracies. And I, you know, used bureaucracy to get a driver's license and I never had to pay anybody a bribe in this country. You know, so I, I was appreciated. People it was very functional. And I've been in other countries where not so much. So I think what you just said goes back to what you were saying earlier about teaching the Enneagram and teaching spiral dynamics to a system that system is only good, ultimately as good as the people it's comprised of. So you need the structure, but you also need the individuals who are there for the right reasons and whose minds are able to get beyond just the structure to what the actual purpose and mission of the bureaucracy might be. Indeed, and I think that, look, the purpose of a bureaucracy is to serve the state and its population. And, and unfortunately, I mean, a bad bureaucracy is because you have people who do not see themselves in a role where they're at the service of the population. But what I try to do also with the Enneagram is also try to help people to understand themselves, like, why are they doing this job? Because, I mean, there is, there is definitely people who are in a bureaucracy for the wrong reasons, right? Um, but also by, by helping people understanding their own motivations and try to, because the, the Enneagram at the end is basically a tool to teach you how to be of greater service to others, actually. I mean, if you really go far into it, it's really about how, how can I be at the service of something bigger than myself? How can I be less ego-centered? How do I take myself maybe a little bit less serious? And I think that's very important in a bureaucracy, that people are, yeah, service deliverers. That's very beautiful, Frederick. I'm so glad you brought that up because I'm only an amateur student of the Enneagram, but I'd never heard it said that at bottom it was about working with it in order to be an instrument of service. Well, basically, because if you are at, let's say, the, the lower levels of development in, in Enneagram terms, there you are very much disconnected from the universe, from oneness. At these lower levels, you're very much self-centered. You're only thinking about yourself. You're not able to see the perspective of somebody else. Whereas once you start working on yourself, as your level of development starts going up, you start becoming part of something bigger than yourself. And if you're part of something bigger than yourself, then you start fulfilling a certain role, right? It's no longer about yourself. If you start understanding that you're basically just like like one cell in my body, that as a person, you're just like one cell of humanity, of a bigger organism, then the only thing you can do is start being in that role. 
instead of being like this one little cell that says that I am the cell and I'm the center of the universe, know that you start seeing that, no, I'm part of something bigger. And then you automatically have to be of service to others. I'm struck by the fact that both you and John in your reflections about the challenges of the Ukrainian situation came down to, as both of you said before, the question that comes up is, what can I do? And that's a very difficult question. It's Frederick, such a complex um, environment, right? I don't know. You're, you're a good example how a good mind can lead to a great heart. Welcome back, everyone. Slight technical meltdown on my side. Switch computers and the brilliant team and my wife together were able to figure it out. But during the break, I asked Frederick if he'd been back to Ukraine since the beginning. And he said that he just had like three weeks ago. Is that right, Frederick? Yeah, yeah, I was there for three weeks. Yeah. And, and I would just love to hear, I mean, you know, we're totally changing the subject, but what you saw and felt from the last time you'd been in Ukraine and the war had progressed for so many months and when you were in Kiev this time. Well, I, as I said in the beginning, right, that it's just the, the whole thing about the uncertainty that you have all these uh, alarms going off and then you have the news at the petrol stations. But it's really like a feeling in the air. And also when you speak to people, there's so much, there's so many emotions around. And people are so emotional and they have, it, it's really like a cocktail of emotions. It's not only, I mean, of course, anger and hatred are things that you can really imagine. But there are so many other things that are so in, in these people. And it's actually challenging sometimes to, to speak people because people have been in this situation now for about four months yeah and the long i mean when you're in a stressful situation you have like the first response the first reaction but then after some time people start getting used to it but it's mm -hmm. getting used to something that's very very unhealthy yeah and People don't know how to deal with that because there is actually no, I mean, there is no psychological support or anything like that, right? I mean, how, how are you going to provide psychological services to, let's say, 37 million people? You can't do that. And, 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 and many people, I mean, people are going through it in, in different ways. Some are very much in this kind of negative spiral, very full of hatred and, and it's taking them really down and down. And for example, for Ukrainian women, it's very important how they look. They have to be beautiful. They really want to have their manicure done well and stuff like that. And for example, I, I was speaking to somebody and she said, look, I don't care anymore. I don't really, in the morning, I don't really care anymore that I'm going to wear beautiful clothes. And I don't really care too much about my nails being done. I mean, for most Ukrainian women, that's already a sign that something is bad, Right. But then I also have a completely different story. And it's one that I heard from my wife, actually. It's a girl who is living in, in a small apartment and her parents were living on the outskirts of Kiev and the house got bombed. The house is completely demolished. Mm. Now, the girl was saying that she's actually grateful and her parents are grateful as well. Why? And, and this may sound completely strange, but let me elaborate on it. It's... This girl was saying she's actually thankful for this because her parents had become too attached to this place. Their whole life had been focused on building this house and doing everything for that house. And that was the only thing in their life. 
And now finally, they have been relieved from that. It's very difficult for most people to accept that, right? Yes. And, and I don't know if I would be able to do something like that. But I found it a truly amazing story, again, how people may use spirituality in a situation like that. Wow. I mean, for some people, some people would say that as a way of escaping from the suffering. But this girl and her family, this really came from a deep place, basically, where they were really in touch with their own grief of what is what was happening. But they understood that they were too attached to that house. And, and so to, to come back to your question, how are people and so on? Everybody's different, and, and you, you will see so many different reactions. I've also spoken to some people who, who have already said that, look, I already don't care what's happening with the war. I mean, even if Russia is going to rule us, I just, I cannot take it anymore. I just want to have peace. I've also spoken to a few people. They are on the Ukrainian side, and their brothers are actually fighting on the other side. Yeah. I mean, just imagine which kind of suffering this is, that... Part of the family is pro-Ukrainian, and the other side is actually pro-Russian. That was like our, our American civil civil war here. That was one of the things that just made it such so devastating. You had brothers fighting brothers. It was uh, it was hard. Did you see a lot of physical destruction that hadn't been there when you were there prior? Yeah. So basically, when I mean, because the, the only way to get around is by train or by car. So basically, as you enter Kiev like the, let's say 30, 40 kilometers before you start entering the city. You're driving through a few villages and that's basically close to Bucha Irpen, the ones that have really made it on, on the news everywhere. I mean, there you basically see on, on the highway just buildings that are completely destroyed, like houses, restaurants, petrol stations, just completely destroyed just because of all, all the artillery um, and, and also some missiles, of course. And, and going through that, for many people, of course, for many colleagues who are seeing that for the first time is, is a very difficult one. I, I have been working in Chechnya before. I was in Chechnya in 2003, 2004. So I've seen my fair share of how Russian destruction can work. Yeah. Um, but indeed, for, for many people, it is very difficult to see something like that the first time. Because, I mean, let, let's not forget that in most of my colleagues have grown up with a mindset that war is something that does not exist in their reality. It's something that we hear about from the news. It's something we study at university. And it's something we've heard about indirectly, but we've never been confronted with it ourselves. And then seeing this type and magnitude of destruction is truly shocking. And, and even for me, I mean, it's it's not the first time that I see something like that, but being confronted with it again is again waking something up. And as we were entering, I mean, as I was driving with my colleague and we were approaching Kiev, I could really feel this anger coming up. I, I could really feel it like in my stomach and it was just going up all the way. And that's when, again, when I had to tell myself, like, look, Frederick, just be aware of what's happening. There, there's nothing wrong with feeling what you're feeling, but you should not be guided in what you're doing just by these emotions alone. Wow. And, and the fact you drove in to Kiev, I just want to, you know, that in itself takes a great deal of courage. 
to go into a war-torn country, and especially for the reasons that you're there to help, you know? So thank you. Thank you for being who you are and doing what you're doing. It moves and impresses me a lot deeply. Ditto, ditto. And also makes me aware of, again, what a bubble of good fortune and blessedness I have that I live in relative affluence and well-being and safety and security. And I've been in places like the slums of Calcutta and India by choice, but it's always been by choice, but I've never been in a war zone. And it's, as you said, it's something I've studied in university, but it's a, it's a remote, something remote and conceptual rather than visceral, as you just described. Yeah. I mean, also in my case, I mean, it's also by choice that I go there. So if I think of what I feel, and then I think, how must a Ukrainian feel seeing that? Because I am still, I, I'm not a Ukrainian, I'm a guest to the country, right? So what does somebody feel whose country this is, or who's directly impacted by it? Um, and, and this must be horrendous. Yeah. And you've spoken of the the wrestling with with all that's happening and trying to make sense of it and and looking for what you can do if you were to step back and look well let me let me just give a context i read your facebook page and saw that you had a birthday earlier this year and you'd written that you thought this year would be quite possibly the most transformative of your life and I just wonder over this, you know, if you step back over these six months since uh, the beginning of the year, how have you changed? Well, I, I think that in the six months, I mean, the last six months have just been a continuation of the change of the last seven years or so. I would not say that what has happened in Ukraine has really been some kind of has not been a crucial moment in my personal transformation. It's important, of course. It's maybe just the catalyst of going a little bit quicker on certain things. Because I, I do feel that we, we all have a mission here, I believe. And I feel that I have come to a point in my career and also in my personal life where I'm ready for a next step where I feel that my work, I mean, for the past 20 years, I've been working in development cooperation, so really working in, in fragile environments and having development programs to support educational reform, health reforms, justice reforms, and so on and so on. And I feel that I have come to the point where maybe I need to take it to a next level, where I need to where maybe I need to become more of a person trying to pass on my own experiences instead of being purely a practitioner, try to gather all my thoughts together and pass on the lessons that I've learned, maybe the hard way, pass it on to other people so that their learning curve is going to be a little bit quicker and maybe less dramatic and maybe less painful. And I think that what's happened with the, the war in Ukraine, it has really, it's just been a a catalyst to go a little bit faster in, in that way. There are many things I appreciate about our conversation, but one of them is the 
is the merging of heart and head that you are bringing to your own life and work in Ukraine and work with the EU and and what you're bringing to this conversation. And it's very easy to fall, as you have pointed out, into automatic reactivity, but I really appreciate the way you're trying to use the best of your heart and the best of your head. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe that if we want to find a solution, a, 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 a true solution, not just a military victory, but if we want to find a sustainable and lasting peace for not just Ukraine, but the whole Eurasian continent and the whole of the world, basically, we can no longer be guided by our heads alone. And we, we, sh- we, we have to include the heart. And what we've seen lately is that the heart is very much absent it's very much the head, and then one specific part of the head, it's the amygdala, basically. Uh, I, I see many people who are almost entirely guided by that specific part of the brain. Uh, the amygdala being the center of the brain, which is involved with emotional reactivity and, and automa- automaticity. And yes, it's kind of a fallback under extreme conditions, but it's something we also need to to the best of our abilities, learn to step back and use those initial emotions as guidelines, but definitely to be reflected on. I see I see you doing that, and it feels like your spiritual work and neogram work have, have really given you a, a beautiful capacity for that kind of stepping back. Much needed, I would imagine, in, of course, for all of us in our lives, but particularly at this time. Yeah, and Frederick, this is the third time that we've been in conversation, and I've noticed a shift in our connection, and maybe it changes in me, and maybe it changes in you, or I'm not sure, but it's different this time. And and I think what you said about times like this being a catalyst for for transformation, you know, if we roll with it, if we go with it, if we allow it to to change us, and the way you've been working with it, it's certainly been working me in a powerful way. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's different this time, and it's it's really good to it's good to be with you again. But you see, it's all about communication, right? Because the first time when we spoke, we didn't know each other, and now it's the third time we have a chat, and we 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 know each other's position. We appreciate each other for each other's position. We may not agree on everything, and and that's fine. We we do not have to agree on everything, but at least the willingness to understand each other. And it does take some time to create this willingness, right? And, and, and I have the same experience as you, John. I mean, also the first time we met online was, was a little bit different. And then when we met in, in Budapest at the conference was also different. And now it's, it, there's, more, there's more openness, I, I, I feel, right, to, to yeah. listen to each other. And, and I think this is what is more needed in the world. And, of course, the problem is now that how do you cultivate this kind of willingness for a dialogue. I mean, right now you can actually question, is it actually possible to have a dialogue at this moment? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it, it's a big question. Should we have a dialogue? I mean, I, I personally think that we should always have a dialogue no matter what happens, but I understand other people may have a different view, but the other thing is that what happens when one person is, let's say, reaching out a hand is willing to engage and the other one is not. So how do we get out of this spiral of more judgmentalism, more blaming each other towards a spiral of opening up and trying to listen to each other? 
Because at the end of the day, I personally believe if we want to get to a lasting, peaceful situation, this is going to be the only way. Yes, the war may be fought on the battlefield, but the peace is only going to come through a dialogue. Yeah. And, and we have more tools now available in the last 50 years that have developed, you know, since World War II to help people heal and to, to help dialogue and more understanding of human nature, as you're saying, the Enneagram and developmental levels. And, and hopefully, you know, these things, we can get them out of our ivory towers and bring them to earth and help in the healing. And there's going to have to be a tremendous amount of healing because wars bring so much suffering that lasts for generations. So hopefully we, we can, you know, those of us who are, in a position in our lives and in, in, uh, developmentally where we can actually make a difference. God help us to, to come together and work together to do the best we can with what we have. And if we can overcome this problem, maybe we can overcome myriad problems. You know, maybe there's a lot of other things. And I, I just got off a conversation with, with you and my Ukrainian friends and, and, and colleagues just before this conversation. And uh, this has been an ongoing thing. And normally I just feel great grief, you know, after having talked to them. And now for the first time, I felt, I felt hope and inspiration, you know, that there, there, there was a shift in them and they were beginning to feel something good things were happening and not just the overwhelming horror of the whole thing. So maybe, maybe, maybe we're getting to a turning point here, you know, and uh, I certainly pray that, that would be so. And certainly part of dialogue is reaching out to other people, as you, as you have both said. And I'd, I'd just like to read some excerpts from some of the things you've put on your Facebook, Frederick, because they really do speak to the reaching out. And you have friends, as you said, in both Russia and Ukraine, both of you. And you've written really beautiful things to both, Frederick, to the Russians, a special request to my Russian friends whom I love and to all Russians. I read Russian news. I also read Ukrainian news. I'm not saying who you should believe. I'm just asking that you do your duty as a human being. And you end, don't tell us later, we did not know. Referring back to the German, German statement, we did not know. Don't tell us later, we did not know. That's a very powerful, very powerful statement. The Germans did not have internet. You have it. That's a very beautiful, not sure. condemning, but pleading, a reaching out, a direct reaching out to these people in a beautiful way. And you likewise said to my, my Ukrainian friends, please treat the Russian prisoners of war with true humanity. They are the aggressor. They've caused destruction. Most of them didn't want to be there. This is your chance to show how civilized Ukraine is by giving them the care and human respect once they are captured. They also have family that is missing them. Instead of increasing human suffering, show them the beautiful side of humanity, please. Beautiful. Yeah. I, I wrote this, I think, a few days after the war started. And again, it is because I have friends on, on both sides of, of this war. And I thought that... I thought that it was what I had to do as a human because, I mean, if you look at my Facebook page, you will see that I do not post very much. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty secretive, I would say. But it was, again, one of these moments where I thought that this is the moment where I have to speak up for what I believe and for what I stand for. 
And I know that um, I'm not going to change uh, the, the mindset of all Russians, but at least it comes down to we all have to do what we have to do at this point, right? I mean, Roger, what you were saying, like, what can we individually do here? Uh, it was just on that moment that I thought that this is what I had to do. And, and there were many friends of mine who commented on this. Um, and then also people I did not know who, who were very reactive, basically. And But that that is fine. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to edit. I'm not going to delete anything. I, I feel people are free to post what they want to post. But indeed, I... I and, and this is something that I see with many Russians. It's again, they do not want to see what is happening because it's too painful. Yeah. Oh, wow. And it feels like what this conversation has pointed us towards is it, of course, pointed towards many things, but one of the recurrent themes is, is a set of really deep wisdom questions. The first being, what can I do? And below that, not only what can I do, but what's the most strategic thing I can do? And below that or accompanying that is the question of what am I called to do? What kind of suffering specifically calls to me? And what with my unique opportunities and contacts and capacities, what can I do that's most effective? And and below that, still a deeper question I hear echoed throughout this conversation, which is, how can I work to make my make myself a more effective instrument of service for healing and well-being? And those are beautiful questions. And it's it's just really touching, Frederick, to see someone in your position on the front lines working at the interface between countries, bringing this kind of humanity to bear on one of the great tragedies of our time and one of the great sources of reactivity in our time. So, so I just want to give a deep bow to you and thank you. And, and perhaps this is a time when to bring our conversation to a close, but before we do, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I, I would really like to thank you for this discussion because I, I believe that there is not enough discussions on the internet and everywhere right now. I mean, if, if you're just opening news pages, you just see all about destruction. If you're going to the Russian websites, you're only going to see their side of the propaganda. And I think that what you're doing is great, just offering a space for this kind of discussions where we can try to weigh in the different perspectives and also, again, bring in the heart. Because I think more of these initiatives are needed. And again, the three of us were not going to change the world, but at least we can plant a little seed that may lead to something bigger. Indeed. So thank you and, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you both so much because both of you particularly are involved in what, trying to do your best in the in this circumstance. You on the front lines, Frederick, John has started a, a fund to serve humanitarian well-being and projects in Ukraine. And so we're doing what we can. And Frederick, uh, a deep bow, much yes. gratitude, and thank you on behalf of us all for being on the front lines and for being with us in this conversation. We're, yeah, big, big virtual hug, Frederick. Thank you so much, brother. And I hope our paths cross again. I hope so too. <laughs> May it be so. Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. 
Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.